Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Technology Transfer IP. Today is the last day of Black History Month, and we wanted to bring you some interviews with some amazing Black scientists. Our first guest, Chancity Robertson, is a supervisory patent examiner in Group Art Unit 1722 at the USPTO. Chance has been a patent examiner for almost 15 years. And with that background, welcome to the podcast, Chance. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, thanks so much, Chance, for agreeing to be a part of the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. And I wanted to start off by asking you about your career journey and how you ultimately became a patent examiner at the USPTO. Okay. Well, in third grade, I did a um, science fair, and it was called What's Up With Germs, where I took apples and, and put them in different places around the house and outside to see the decaying process. And I made it all the way to state. Wow. So that's my first interest into the field of science. And it went from there. Um, I've always been just great at science. Um, so when I got to college, they said, what do you want to major in? I said chemistry. And people were like, are you serious? And I'm like, absolutely. Um, so I don't take that for the fact. I know people are like chemistry, why? Uh, but it just came natural to me. So I stay with it. And um, so I end up graduating from Spelman College um, with a chemistry degree. And while at Spelman, I was able to do a lot of research. Um, one thing I did was I taught at the University of San Juan in Puerto Rico for two years. Um, and I presented research there. I also had a chance to work on supermolecular super green chemistry at the University of Iowa, which I wrote a paper on. Um, so I'm very happy about that because most undergraduates do not get to write a graduate paper um, while in undergrad. So that was awesome. And green chemistry was like the hot new norm. That must have been pretty new at the time, I would think. Very new. Very new. So we were on to something. <laughs> um, I know that now since I work at the patent office, <laughs> so we were definitely on to something. Um, and so I was just able to present and travel and science opened a lot of doors for me. So while at Spelman, uh, they had this recruitment section um, with United States Patent and Trademark Office. They came down to Georgia Tech and I did take a few um, engineering courses. And one lady said, you should look to attend the patent office. I wasn't sure if I knew what a patent was because I had never been um, privileged to that type of information. So I thought I was going to be a pharmacist. I worked at CVS my whole undergrad. I did compounding for the pharmacy. I was like, yeah, retail pharmacy, here I come. Um, but somebody told me to take a chance. So I moved to D.C. and that's how I became a patent examiner. 
Wow, that's quite a story. And and obviously now you're working remotely for the patent office, right? Because you're based back in Georgia at this point. Yes. So I moved to D.C. I lived there for eight years. And then um, after eight years, I relocated back to the Georgia area. Yes. So it's been great. So you're a primary examiner now. Can you tell us a little bit about what the whole examiner experience has been like for you? So I said, so as a patent examiner, what we do is we determine the liability of a patent application. So we research it. We make sure that the invention is, you know, the people that are saying that they invented it. Um, we determine patentability. And so as a primary examiner, that means I review junior examiner cases. Um, so I have three or four um, people under me that I review and they work on a series of different subjects from lithography, liquid crystallization, photoresist, and electrolytes, battery um, applications. So it's very interesting. I read a lot of chemistry inventions <laughs> every day. Yeah, because you're in, in, in group uh, 1722, which is, like you said, liquid crystals, printing, metalworking, a whole bunch of batteries, a whole bunch of different things, right? Absolutely. Yes. So what would you say... Um, would be probably the biggest misnomer that people have about being a patent examiner. I mean, you've obviously worked with a lot of attorneys and agents over time, and you probably think that there's some misconceptions that people have about patent examiners. What one or two things would you say those are? The misconception that we don't do anything. <laughs> they were just stealing government time. No, our job is so time consuming. Uh, little do people know we're, we have very little time to research and review these applications. Um, and we try to do a thorough job. We try to keep them out the courts as much as we can, um, prevent, you know, patents that should not be there. Um, so misconception that um, when I first started, we were known as the rejection office. As an attorney, Lisa, I don't know if you ever heard of that, but yeah, they say they don't allow anything, but we actually work for the people. We actually want people to get their intellectual property rights. And as patent examiners, we don't get any bonuses or anything if they get the patent or not. It's, we don't get a reward from the companies. We actually just work for everyday people. We we are the people's people. So we're there to help you all to make sure the patent you're getting is a valid and, you know, hopefully not being infringed on if you ever have to go to court. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your journey, Chance. Um, could you tell us a little bit about some of the obstacles you faced along your way? Yes. So being a Black woman, a minority, and in STEM as a chemistry, is definitely not a lot of people that look like me. So it's been difficult, right? So starting in science, so my third grade teacher was actually a white male who introduced me into this world. He was um, the only white teacher I had in elementary school. And he was always a mentor. To this day, he's still one of my uh, mentors to this day. Uh, so he introduced me to this world of science. And he told me then, you're very good at this. And back then, that's, we're not going to age me, but it might have been in the 90s, early 90s. Uh, <laughs> so um, it wasn't a lot of people going into chemistry at all. And um, I stayed with it. So there is some journeys. But I would say the reward is bigger. When you stand out and you have to fight for your seat, it just makes it much better. Um, it makes you, you feel more rewarded 
because if it came easy, you probably won't appreciate it as much. So that's one of the hard part. Um, I would say for anyone, especially a woman of color, a young man of color, to know that you are worth to be at the table. Um, and one thing they can't take, well, anyone can take from you is your education and your smartness. And as long as you know that you belong, fight for it um, at all costs. And I've been able to do a lot of things and I'm absolutely probably the only person that looks like me in the room. But once they, you open your mouth and you explain who you are and they know your worth, they are receiving. So that's my only advice if I can give. So just know your worth and know you belong at the table. I think that's great. And and in fact, that that's a great segue to, to my last question for you, Chance. I, I wanted to know, what would your advice be to a young black boy or girl who's thinking about getting into STEM? STEM is the gateway to innovation. So going in STEM opens up so many doors. If you would have told me you're going to go to law school from STEM, I would have said, no way. You know, um, all my undergraduate friends would tell you Chance first wanted to own her own pharmaceutical company and do something with research. Growing up in Atlanta, the CDC was everything I knew about science. So if you're going to be a scientist, you're going to the CDC. Um, but there's so many opportunities and other things you can do with a STEM degree. So my biggest advice is open up so many doors. And by having a degree that is not fluctuated with a lot of people, you have more options and job opportunities that you probably would not. And there's no shade to anybody else degrees or any BA degrees. It's just having that Bachelor of Science degree just open up opportunities that you probably would not be able to have with other degrees. And it only takes an undergrad degree. Yeah, exactly. Because that's how you started off at the patent office, right? With an undergraduate degree. Yeah, I went right from um, undergraduate to that. And I eventually went on to a grad program and to law school. But yes, that's awesome. Well, Chance, I wanted to thank you so much for sharing your career journey with us. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Um, you can reach me on um, email at chancebee.robinson at gmail.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram as NYAC underscore ATL. Um, LinkedIn, I'm Chancebee Robinson. I do believe that's what it says. It might be IP Chance. <laughs> and yes, I'm free and open to any questions. Any, I have people all the time reach out to me. So I'm always open. My doors is always open, especially for anyone trying to get into STEM or into the patent law. Uh, we need more minorities in patent law. So please reach out to me. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much, Chance. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lisa. And happy birthday. <laughs> thank you. Our second guest, Dr. Richard Orefo, is the chair of Muscular Skeletal Science, the director of the Center for Human Development, Stem Cell and Regeneration at the University of Southampton, and CEO of Renovos Biologics. And with that impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Orefo. Oh, Lisa, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me and um, greetings from this side of the pond. Yes, well, thank you so much for agreeing to be a part of the podcast. I'm really thrilled to have you here. And I wanted to start off by asking you if you could tell us a little bit about your career journey. Sure. So um, I'm Black British. Uh, obviously, people can't see me. Um, I was born in London. 
um, and uh, many years ago now. And my father is Nigerian and my mother is Irish. And we, um, when I was 12 months old, went back to Nigeria. And my father actually came out to Bristol in 66. And there's a relevance to this uh, on a scholarship to Bristol University. And I was trapped with my twin in Nigeria. Oh, wow. And, and this was the start of your readers or your listeners, I should say, may or may not have heard of something called the Biafran War, Nigerian Civil War in 67 to 69. So I was actually trapped in, in the south of Nigeria for a few years. And, and we moved around and my parents were in Bristol and we managed to be evacuated out by the Red Cross and we arrived in um, Bristol in December 69. So this is a month before the war ended. OK, and so so really, this is just to give you a little context of, of your like where things have moved from. So I had an incredibly privileged background as a child until the war came. And then when we arrived um, in Bristol, then obviously we, we were um, arriving, for, essentially you could say we were refugees arriving, escaping a war scenario. Um, and I very quickly had to learn English again um, and and start my, my education having been two, three years in the war. And I was incredibly fortunate to have a fantastic primary school teacher. I, I still remember his name, Mr. Gutzel. And he actually... Um, essentially took my twin and I under, under his wing and um, allowed us to flourish and really look beyond the colour barrier. I think it's fair to say. And remember, this is 70s England. Again, I, I'm not sure of the reach of your podcast, but 70s England in the United Kingdom was a, a fairly racially charged environment. Um, but I actually had a, a wonderful childhood and, and I thrived um, and I have had mentors all my life. And that becomes important later on. So I, I went to the University of Liverpool and I studied biochemistry. Again, I had another wonderful mentor, Jack Pennock. Uh, and Jack really, again, just brought out the best in me. And then I um, went to Oxford and I, um, I studied vitamin A and bone. And that, that started my love affair with bone and my passion for musculoskeletal science. So I really um, developed my interest in bone. Um, I, uh, curiosity is a big part of my life. And that really is one of the things that drives me. And it was there that my curiosity was driven in, in terms of bone and bone science. And it was Jack Pennock who first introduced me to vitamin K carboxylation. And then I went into vitamin A and then I went into bone. And then I, I've been in bone for 35 years. Um, but it was when I went from Oxford, I came to Texas, yeah. home of the Alamo. And it was there that I really, if you like, my career took off. I was again really fortunate to be under the tutelage of um, Professor Greg Mundy. And Greg was a, he's actually from Tasmania. Greg was somebody who really cared about his postdocs. Not something you often hear. And again, Greg really instilled in me that, if I wanted to to make a difference, if I wanted to rise, I had to be the best I can be. Um, and if don't do the black young angry man, lose the afro, all of that, and and really see what I could do in in the bone field, and then try and make a difference. And I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but you remember this is late eighties, we're into the nineties, um, and so that was advice I, I took on board. Um, 
I was at Zeneca for a few years, helping them establish a bone group, and then they wanted to move out of bone um, and into infection in various other areas, and, and I wanted to stay in bone. Um, so I went back to Oxford, um, and then I've been at Southampton for the last 23 years, and I'm Professor of Musculoskeletal Science in Southampton. Um, I, I'm co-founder of the Centre for Human Development, Stem Cells and Regeneration. I spun out um, as an academic co-founder with John Dawson and, and two non-academics, Renovus Biologics, um, a couple, about five years ago now, um, Agnieszka Janacek and James Otter. So the four of us spun out Renovus Biologics from work within, within the group. And as I say, I've been in Southampton for 23 years. Um, and then most recently, perhaps we can touch on this later, in June 2020, I founded the Cowrie Scholarship Foundation. So it, it's, if you like, a common thread for me has been curiosity, um, wanting to understand bone. And the one thing that gets me really excited, and this is very nerdy, I admit, is <laughs> bone stem cell. So one of the things we still don't know is how to isolate, how to pull out that bone stem cell that makes bone. Um, and of course, if we can do that, then we can start to think about how we can repair bone. We can think about diseases such as osteoporosis. We can think about fracture repair, etc. But to, still till today, we don't actually know how to identify the specific bone stem cell. We can enrich and we can find populations of cells. But it's one of the things that I've been working on for the longest time. It's what gets me excited on a Monday morning. And it's that trying to understand bone and trying to understand the musculoskeletal system and, and, and all of that from bench all the way through to clinic, which is, again, where Renovos comes in. Wow, that's an amazing journey. And, and thank you so much for sharing that with us. And you mentioned that curiosity has always been a big part of your life. And I'm interested, um, being so curious, have you always been interested in science or was that something that came later? No, I I, I think there are two things. One is obviously nature nurture is, is that big, big argument. Um, so my father was a virologist. Um, and so science, if you like, was in, in the house um, and He'd already, as I said, remember. So this is a, this is a black man arriving on a scholarship, not only in Bristol, but he'd actually gone for a scholarship in, I think it was '61 to New York, and so he'd already been through all of the challenges far more than I will ever go through um, within that space. But again, he, he instilled in me a ferocious work ethic and and a, and a and a love of education and a passion for education. And my mentors, all they did was not all they did. What they managed to do was to bring that out the best um, for me and to really take that forward and show that that's where my strengths lie. And I, I was fortunate to identify it really early on. And I also, I think it's fair to say, I was really lucky to find out that I really liked working in bone. And, and that's really important. It's, it's not just I liked science. It's not just that I was good at biology. It's not just that I was good at biochemistry and wanting to, to make a difference. But it was the fact that I'm still not bored working after 30 plus years in the bone space. And that's that's a wonderful place to be. Yeah, you can tell you're extremely passionate about the work you do, which is amazing because it makes every day worthwhile when you get up, when you're so passionate about what you do, right? Well, I'll give you one example. So one of the things we've started doing is 3D printing. 
okay, from a, a bone perspective. And one of the best days for me was when one of our patients um, had a 3D printed hip with his own um, bone marrow containing stem cells using a technique that we pulled together with the clinicians here in Southampton. And it was actually the first 3D printed stem cell augmentation that was undertaken in the UK. And that, that was super exciting. I mean, this that's is a really, amazing. Niche, really niche and, and I, I think your listeners are going to be switching off. But that for <laughs> us was just fantastic. And the reason it's exciting is because I also lecture to, to medical students. I don't do a huge amount of teaching, but he comes along and he walks into the room and he just lights up that room. So I'm there talking about we were 3D printing. We took out his bone marrow, contained some of his stem cells. We worked with the clinicians, able to put this together. And he's now walking around with this 3D printed hip, with an impaction bone grafting, with his own stem cells. And he's hypermobile. It's great. He's enjoying life drives an Audi TT sports car, he's in his 70s. (laughs) You know, the quality of life is all there. And he has the students eating out of his hand. And to be a part of that process and that journey and taking that forward, it it really doesn't get better than that. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. That's an incredible story. And and talking about journeys, going back to yours, I'm curious if you could share with us maybe some of the obstacles that you've faced along the way. Yeah, I I think it's it's fair. (laughs) When I arrived in Bristol, so there was a novelty factor. So again, we were fortunate. We were in quite an affluent part of Bristol, went to a wonderful primary school. Um, as I said, Mr. Gutzel really did take us under his, his wing. But we were, without a doubt, novelty factor. You know, we were these two boys, um, how old were we? 69. So, you know, less than 10, we'd arrived. Um, and so there was this novelty factor of these two children from the war zone looked different to all the other children, Um big Afro hair, all of that. And so there was that there was that difference there. But we were in, in many ways quite fortunate that we didn't suffer too much in terms of some of the abuse that, that some people will have. At secondary, at secondary school, there was also a challenge. You just had to be careful where you were and when you where you went in the evening and, and that sort of thing. Um, I can still remember, so again, some of your listeners will remember, there used to be something called 35-millimeter diazo slides. They were yes. blue and white. Yep. Right. Oh, and they, in fact, it, right at the beginning, they were black and white. So this won't mean anything to anyone who does PowerPoint. <laughs> But in in the 80s and 90s, um, it used to be that when you wanted to give your talk, your presentation, you used these blue diazo slides or white diazo slides. And I can remember on more than one occasion being asked to, and I'm giving a talk and I've gone to the presentation room with my slides and being asked by um, other speakers, oh, could you just load those slides for me, please? So the assumption being I was not there to give a presentation and there's no way that I, I, I would could possibly be on the podium um, and those are the more polite comments um, that, that if you like that I've observed and within the university setting it's also fair to say that quite often in, in a senior position I'll be the only person of colour and I'm sort of used to that because again nothing will compare to what my father had to go through so again, he he tells us wonderful stories. Um, so Stonehenge is a is a, a, a wonderful monument that you some of your listeners will have heard of in in Wiltshire, and there's a there's a a research centre down there, the STL, uh, Defence of Science and Technology, um, 
And, and my father was coming from Bath to DSTL and back um, with, with another senior scientist. They were driving, there's a car called the Jensen Interceptor, but it was from America. And of course, the steering wheel was on the other side. And my father was stopped. Um, and the, the assumption being a person of color, my father's black, he's driving a Jensen Interceptor. There's no way he should be driving this car. And the policeman pulled across, looked over. And there was the moment of, ah, oh, Yes, he's not driving the car. It's the wheels on the other side. It's actually belongs to the other individual. So there's not that many circumstances that I've been through that my father hasn't already been through and shared with me, etc. So that resilience and that understanding of the challenges, I have been aware for a long time. But it's that um, ability to understand that mediocrity will not do. Um, and whenever people say, oh, don't worry about it. It really doesn't matter. I, I don't. I personally um, don't subscribe to that philosophy. You have to be the best you can when you're a person of color, um, and you have to rise as far as you can. And then you need to make a difference. Interactions matter. I strongly believe interactions matter, and, and how you deal with people and how you respond to people, huge, huge issues from my perspective. And and I think if you can understand. At a human level, then you can go a, a very long way in this space. And, and that's that's all I, I try and do in my day-to-day -day interactions. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit, Dr. Orfeo, and ask you about your company, Renovos Biologics Limited. Right. So um, one of the things we know is that there's an increasing aging population. You know, we've all hopefully lived for our sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth decades. And with that, we want that improved quality of life. Because we still want to be on the golf course. We want to play with our grandchildren. We want to just be able to enjoy that quality of life. We, we, but of course, with increasing age, there are all those issues, especially in the musculoskeletal space. Um, so osteoporosis, for example. So one in two women over the age of 50 will, not maybe, not perhaps, one in two women over the age of 50 will suffer an osteoporotic fracture, um, and one in five men. So th it's a huge issue that many of us will come to, to realize in our eighth and ninth and tenth decades. And so what we wanted to do was to come up with a, a, one of the solutions. And in terms of bone formation, one of the, the challenges that um, there are proteins we can use, for example, bone morphogenetic protein, which are important in the bone formation process. But of course, they have a short half-life. You've got a real problem delivering it. It's already available in the clinic, but it's used at very, very high doses. And, and essentially, what we've done is we've come up with a nanoclay, and this nanoclay is able to inject and deliver proteins, factors of interest to this site of interest precise location through a needle. It's actually um, something called a thixotropic gel. So when you put it through a, a syringe, it starts off um, from gel and you apply force through that syringe, it becomes a sol and then it sets again as a gel. So you can imagine how we can inject this precisely to areas we want and we're interested in spinal fusion, we're interested in, in fracture repair. And, and so that's, that's really, it's a very simple concept is that we have a gel, it's a hydrogel that we can actually use to deliver growth factors and we can apply it in the, in the skeletal space. And what's really ex exciting in terms of cost of goods, et cetera, is that we're using very, very low doses. And so there's a wonderful safety element. And again, for your materials experts in there, if you like the USP for our, our, our approach 
is that it retains the growth factor. Okay, so we, we put it into that side of interest. It's got our growth factor of interest and the body's own cells are attracted into that site and they make new bone. And the fact that we can deliver this localized through a needle to the site of interest is something that we're really excited about. And that's Renovos. That's amazing. Um, I'm just curious, um, how, do, how does the nanoclay work differently than, let's say, like bone cement? I'm familiar that there's a lot of bone cements that are, that are out there to treat orthopedic type of injuries. Yeah, so, so the difference here is that what we're looking to do is to retain the growth factor within the site. And as the cells migrate into that nanoclay, into that hydrogel, then the growth factor is retained at that physiological dose. It's not, I mean, one of these growth factors is already available in the clinic, but it's used at very high doses. And in fact, it has um, deleterious effects and has led to a number of lawsuits, etc. The mechanism here is that we have a hydrogel with our protein of interest. In this case, it's born morphogenic protein. We inject it into our site. The body's own cells are recruited and undertake that repair process. And we, the gel retains the protein. It's not released. It's, not a, it's more than just a filler, which in, in many ways a bone cement is. And of course, a bone cement has all those issues around heat um, that you're going to be using. It's great if you're doing it in an implant and you're trying to hold it onto that. We don't have any of those issues. Very interesting. Thank you. Um, I wanted to go back to the Calorie Scholarship Fund that you mentioned that you founded in June 2020. Could you tell us a little bit more about the scholarship fund and what you're trying to achieve with it? Yeah. So the, the, essentially, if we think about education and education for all, um, in many of our high tariff universities in the United Kingdom, there's a huge underrepresentation of Black British students, and that's that's a tragedy in in many ways. So these are highly talented people who can't go to our universities because of a financial limitation. So the Cowrie Culture Foundation has a really simple mission: we want to fund 100 disadvantaged Black British students to attend. Um, our UK universities in the next decade. And the model is really simple. We partner with universities. The universities cover tuition fees. And then we partner with business and with donors, and we cover the living costs. So these are financially, socioeconomically disadvantaged Black British students. They have to gain acceptance into these universities. So these are wonderfully talented students, but they can't afford. And we want to bridge that financial barrier. And, and I'm super excited. We've got 18 universities signed up. Oh, that's fantastic. Congratulations. No, we're, we're so excited. We've got 18 universities covering tuition fees for 62 students. Oh, that's great. Uh, and that they, they provided 1.7 million, uh, what's that, I don't know, $2 million. Um, and of course, the potential for us, and really, if any of your business communities are interested, we need to unlock the money from the universities by matching that from business. It's as simple as that. So we've actually had wonderful traction from the university sector. Um, as I say, 18 of them have joined. We think we will get to our, our target of 25 by September. Um, but actually, what we're trying to find matching funds from business. We've got five to date, and that's wonderful. We've got Unilever, We've got Oxira, we've got Jacobs, Tradeweb, Capital Group. We've got five, but actually, you know, we need another 20. 
to, to match the university 1.7 million. But it, it's a really exciting time. Our first five students started in September. So uh, you talked about barriers. So, so here's a good one. When I started, it was literally a blank. Yeah, it's, sorry, it's, your, your listeners can't see this. I had a blank piece of paper in June 2020. And of course, it was all very much around the, the tragic events of, of George Floyd on May the 27th. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was when it really struck me that I'd, I'd been wanting to do this for a number of years. But it was really, there was a groundswell in the UK and, of course, in the US and across the world of a conversation. We need to make a difference and, and we need to try and change and move the dial. And that's really why I, I was able to, if you like, push so hard on this and to actually gain some traction, I believe, through those tragic events. But of course, we need to unlock this money from the, from the universities through business to allow these students to, to start. But again, I, I was told, as I said, is this a Nigerian scam? So you talked about challenges. Yeah. You know, saying, can you give me some money? We want to send some students to to our universities. And I've kept those emails because they they keep me grounded when I think we're doing wonderfully well. Um, and it's it's just trying to to, to realize that the, the thin veneer of civilization, and it really is that, racism is never very far away. In academia, people think that it's not, there is no racism. Unfortunately, the, truly there is. Um, so we're aware of it in, in in the finance sector, we're aware of it in um, the health sector, aware of it in the army, etc. But in academia in the UK, for example, just give you one stats here, we have 23,000 professors in the United Kingdom, okay? 35 are female. Wow, <laughs> that's an incredible statistic. Just think about that. Wow. 23,000 professors in the United Kingdom, 35 black female, 155 are male, and I'm one of 300 mixed race, dual heritage. Wow. So you're talking 1.2% for male, and vanishingly small for women. And that's academia, where we believe in, you know, we have the ivory tower, we believe we're all enlightened, we believe that there's true um, meritocracy, and, and there isn't in, in academia, there just isn't. And, and it's how we can try and address that. And this is a drop in the ocean, I'm, not, I'm under no illusion, but if we can change the lives of these hundred students, they will become the legacy. They will be the change that we all want to see. And that's what's so important. So it's just incredible, Dr. Orfeo, what your scholarship fund is looking to do. And I wanted to ask you, given that and given what you just said, what would your advice be to any young black boy or girl thinking about getting into science? I think if this is what you want to do, then there's nothing to stop you. I I really do believe that. Nelson Mandela was the one of my heroes. And I was really fortunate to meet him once in Oxford when he came to get his honorary degree. And he said, education is the most powerful weapon we can use to change the world. And it's on our website, carriescollegefoundation.org. Um, and, I, and I use that quote all the time. So if you have a passion for science, for anything, whatever your passion, okay, education will change your life. It will give you that opportunity. It'll open those doors. And don't let anyone tell you that you can't do X, Y, or Z. So um, what's really important is some mentors, some networks, 
Find people who who, will, who can help you share that passion. You can start up with school clubs. There, there are lots of people out there who can help you reach that dream. And, and I think it's really important that we don't try and, and have any um, limitations or perceptions of, oh, black students can't become professors or um, can only be sports people. Or I mean, the one that was doing the rounds recently is that black people can't swim. For, for example, because they've got heavier bones, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just ignoring all of that mindset and believing in, in yourself and surrounding yourself with people that can help you. And of course, hard work, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, it, it's really important to realize that don't let other people limit your vision and your passion and where you want to be. Well, that was very well said. And Dr. Orfeo, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. This has been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions or ask you about the Cowrie Scholarship Fund, where can they reach you? Um, so you can email me directly. It's info, I-N-F-O, at CowrieScholarshipFoundation.org. And you can find us on the website. It's, again, www.CowrieScholarshipFoundation.org. So, reach out to me through the website or just send me a direct email. It would be absolutely wonderful to, to link up, to engage with any of you and to try and take some of this forward. I'd, I'd be absolutely delighted. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Orfeo. This has really been great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Oh, thank you for the time. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups. Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.